Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. So last year, Joe Biden was sitting in the Oval Office with some members of Congress, strategizing over how to get Build Back Better passed. Biden has a, has a great sense of humor. I, yeah, I don't think he'd mind sharing this, or, a, or a, a, a sense of humor of putting you at ease. Congressman Ro Khanna, who was the co-chair of Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign, had an idea. I said, Mr. President, you know, why don't you just get uh, Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin in the room and hammer this out? Khanna's argument? You don't need all these conversations. You could just cut the deal, and whatever those two agree with with you, that'll be the uh, roadmap. And he looks at Peter Welch, who's the congressman for Vermont, and he says, you know, Roe Ro thinks he knows Bernie because he was the co-chair, but Peter, you and I know Bernie, right? And he says, what Roe's asking for is just is homicide, uh, to, to put uh, them in a room. And he, kinda, and he says, it'd be like, Roe, you and me boxing, I'd, I'd beat the hell out of you, but, but why would we want to say it? So, you know, it's, it's a disarming uh, humor, and it was in good faith. One of the things we like to do on this show is introduce you to political insiders who you may not know much about, but who you need to know about. And you need to know about Roe Khanna. And not just because he tells a lot of great stories like the one about how Biden thought Manchin and Sanders might kill each other. You need to know about Khanna for three big reasons. One, he's one of the most influential progressives inside the House Democratic Caucus. I support Medicare for all Bernie Sanders' bill. I support a free public college and free vocational education. I support a $15 wage and living wage. I support collective bargaining rights. And two, he's the kind of congressman who isn't just concerned about his own district, though he is. He also thinks a lot about the Democratic Party writ large, where it's gone wrong and what it needs to do to fix itself. If you start listening to Democratic speeches, you would think that everything is falling apart in this country. Someone who wants to harness the political insights of Bill Clinton and Barack Obama to sell the agenda of Bernie Sanders. I think it's one of the reasons that Bill Clinton and Obama were so, so effective is that they actually spent a lot of time in places where people didn't agree with that. Obama right? says that all the time. Right. And three, he's probably going to run for president one day. I admit these things are highly subjective, but you sit down with Kana for a few hours and you leave thinking or at least I did, yeah, that guy could make it all the way. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. Today, my producer, Carlos Prieto, set us up at Good Stuff Eatery a few blocks from the Capitol. We ordered burgers, fries, and shakes. The venue was Kana's choice. I always get the same thing. I get Not because he's Obama. I get the Obama burger because it's very good, and I get the marshmallow milkshake, so... So what's your explanation for BBB falling apart last year? Um, what happened? We did, should have did... compromised with Manchin earlier, I mean, in retrospect. I, I'm still talking to him. I'm still hoping. No, we can... I want to get into that. But, but, <laughs> what, but how did it all fall apart? I think the president's numbers turned after Afghanistan. Look, when they started to 
to pull back. And there was a expectation that a false expectation that they could just roll Mansion uh, in cinema and they'd get in line. I think it was based on the fact that everyone was unified after the American Rescue Plan. Uh, if you talk to Senator Manchin, he'll tell you, and I'm not saying anything that he wouldn't say himself, that he had made it clear that he was willing to do certain things in the American Rescue Plan that he wasn't willing to do on this, Build Back Better. And there was just this hope that the momentum and everything will carry it, and ultimately Manchin usually votes with the party, and yeah. the chips would fall in line. And that, that was the strategic... Uh, calculation and why was that wrong well it was wrong because Manchin didn't didn't, didn't agree I mean I'd say you know and and, and and I don't think there's anyone who in retrospect wouldn't say look uh, we should have made a made a compromise we're trying now to get yeah. the compromise right was there a moment but, when you look back where you think shit that's the moment we should have cut that deal with uh, with you know with the White House and Mansion, there was a, there was a window. I don't know, but before the end of the year, something went off, right? Because I, w- I was having, I've been having for six months, seven months, constructed conversations with Senator Manchin. I, I you was, were personally, yeah. I, and and if you ask, I mean, we have a a, a good rapport. I, I, I you've you been know, on I, the boat. Have you been on the no, house I've boat? I've not been on the boat. <laughs> but I was. He had invited me because I've de- I've been passionate about these tech jobs into rural communities, and so I went to Beckley, West Virginia. We had spent forty five minutes together, and. Uh, 2017, where he was talking about the state, and he loved the idea of having these tech jobs come to Beckley. And Gordon G., who is the president of West Virginia Tech, is close to him, and uh, I've helped him get support in Silicon Valley. So, you know, I've had a relationship with Manchin, and I've never questioned his his motives or uh, questioned his word in the press. I've said, look, he, we have disagreements, but he's coming from a place of uh, his philosophy, and we've got to find a compromise. And so he's always said... You know, he wants to work and come to a, to a compromise. I thought we had a lot of momentum heading before the end of the year. And then something yeah. went, went wrong. Uh, and I, I really believe that Manchin does want to come to a, an agreement. But that moment is different at different times, right? I mean, so yeah. there have been moments where he wants to. I don't know where he is now, but there have been yeah. those moments. And so we've got to figure out how. My point to the progressives has been... If we don't get climate now, who knows what happens in the midterms, right? It's an un- unknown. When are we going to get climate? This is, our, this is our shot. So if you have to have some increase in something you don't want on fossil fuel production just in a limited basis, but we get $500 billion of renewable energy that's going to have an impact on the whole world and that's going to help us rebuild America, do it. Take the deal. And... Uh, and a lot of progressives are, are I was now. Say, how, what's the reaction to like your fellow CPC members? It was a hard no, probably back in September of last year. It's softer by November, December. Now the latest article I saw in Politico, where a lot of members now are okay, we're willing to compromise. I I think if the I believe to this day that if the president comes to a deal with Mansion and it's reasonable, and you get a couple progressives behind it, that the thing will pass. Yeah. And we should just, and here's what can't happen. 15 senators afterwards can't text Manchin to say, okay, we need this too. Like, it's just have the, cut the deal, vote on it, and get it done. I wonder if you could take us through a little bit of what the range of strategic uh, advice is within the Congressional Progressive Caucus. You, you often seem to me at least to have a different approach to um, making the case 
for the progressive point of view than uh, some of your colleagues. Um, you talk about compromise and giving match in the pen <laughs> and not questioning motives. I think when we attack people like Joe Manchin, uh, in some ways we're attacking his voters. And instead, I think we have to also listen and say, what, what are we missing? Why is it that so many parts of the country uh, are upset? And how are we going to respond uh, in a constructive way uh, to them? So I think that the, 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 the genius of Obama in one way was that he said, look, I don't even belong on this stage. It was literally he said that. But you, America, are so great that you're giving me a chance. It's American greatness. The, Afri the vote for Obama was affirming American greatness, not Obama's greatness. And we have to, 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 to appeal to that sense, which I fundamentally believe that we're going to become this first multiracial, multiethnic democracy in the world. Of course, it's a product of your own story, right? How can you not believe that as a son of immigrants born in Philadelphia and the country uh, gives me the chance to represent the most powerful place uh, economically in the world at the age of 40? Like, would Germany put a son of a first-generation immigrant in charge of their, like, most important industry region? No. So those are the places where it's the shaping of, of, of the, the narrative. And then finally, it's the, because if you come from a view that you don't have the monopoly on the truth, you may be less judgmental. You may just say, you know, I disagree. I was on Neil Cavuto with Fox News. <laughs> and you do, the, and you'll, you'll go on Fox. You're not like... And I'll say this. I, I, I said Texas. I was real say this. He got the better of the argument. It wasn't my bet. I did better. Well, I did got... I would give myself a... Well, I would give myself a A-minus a on the Fox News on the Sunday reports. Cavuto got the better of the argument. What, was, it, it, what was the argument? It was on the... By, uh, um, windfall profit tax, which is tax the oil companies and have the refund out. And he kept... And it's not... Now, I still believe in the bill. But I didn't think of his points, which were, okay, well, you, well why aren't you taxing Apple computers? And why would they make bigger margins? And why, why this? So my point is, now, if you... It's pretty used, rare to hear a congressman say they went on Fox and had a debate about a bill they really care about and that well, the did. anchor think, made some points you didn't think of. But that's the whole point yeah, of going yeah, on, yeah. right? I mean, sub, now I'm like much better armed in thinking about those arguments. So I can have a better shot at convincing the independents in my district because I now have a response. You know, he said, well, Keystone Pipeline, uh, you know, he had this point. But Cavuto is one of the more thoughtful anchors. But he said, uh, you know, well, it, it didn't bite in by not having the Keystone Pipeline hurt uh, uh, the, the, the oil prices. And I said, no, he didn't because, well, the production would have been two years out. And Cavuto, which is amazing, like they have thoughtful this type of thought there, but they said, well, what about the future oil prices? Because you know, Congressman, that it's not just current production, it's future production that's factored into current price. And I gave an answer that wasn't very compelling. And then later on, I looked it up, and I, what I should have said is, well, Keystone is only one per less than 1% of production of oil price. But the point is, if I hadn't gone on Fox News, and I hadn't subject myself to that debate, and I hadn't probably lost the debate in that moment, I would never think of the counterarguments. I'd never think of the weaknesses in my own point of view. And I feel so much of the Democratic Party right now is we're not, we, we just are say, we say if they disagree with us, they're morally wrong. Yeah. And that's not the, the that's not the, the American way. The, the, the perspective is subject yourself to the, the debate, the, what Douglas called the free air of America, of ideas. So when the issue comes up of whether Democrats should boycott Fox or not, 
and I think it probably, correct me if you think I'm wrong about this, but it probably matters what show and what specific host some of them sure. are, are you're not going to have necessarily a good faith debate with. Right. But you're generally in the in, of the view that go test your arguments in that kind in that in that sort of uh, crucible um, rather than the position that some Democrats take, which is Fox News is irredeemable and we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't um, we shouldn't go on at all. I'm of the view that you should go on, not just because it's the politically smart thing to do, because it'll help you test your ideas, which, which allow you, right? There's in the modern media age. Are there it, limits to that, though? Would you yeah, go on sure. Tucker? Would you go on Tucker? I haven't gone on Tucker. And I'm not saying, you know, I mean, I'm, recently. I'm, I went on early on. But, so, yeah, there are limits. Obviously, there are limits to anything. There are limits. But, pretty, but you'll, you'll, you're more inclined but to go than not go. If I'm you more, get asked. I did Ben yeah. Shapiro. Yeah. I mean, I'm more inclined to go than not go, partly because it, it forces you to, to have an engagement. It's this interesting thing, right? It used to be that you had to come from a... Uh, a, a very conservative, moderate district to test out your ideas. Now you could actually come from a pretty liberal price and test out your ideas and see, are they, are they resonating? You mean it, like with the Fox News? With the Fox News. I think it's one of the reasons that uh, our great politicians, Bill Clinton and Obama, were so, so effective is that they actually spent a lot of time in places where no. people didn't agree with that. Obama right? says that all the time. You know, so that going I, to Southern yeah. Illinois was right. the key for him understanding a lot of Americans outside of uh, Chicago. I'm going uh, tomorrow morning. There's a friend of mine who's putting a roundtable together, uh, closed, not, not with the press, with 15 Maytag folks who were laid off to see what are they going to think of this jobs and tech and other message, right? So yeah. engaging politically is important, but I would argue it's substantively important. How can you be for unifying the country? That can't mean unify the country just on my terms. With my particular vision of the truth it's got to yeah. be yeah. i want to engage with people and find where the the common ground for the modern body politic is doesn't mean you compromise things you fundamentally total principles but you have to engage and yeah. i so when people say should we just write off uh, ohio or some of these states i say it's not just politics if you believe what Obama believed in 2004, that you want to bring this country together, which is at the deepest, at one of the deepest aspirations of people, then you have to care substantively about these communities and, 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 and trying to find that common ground. Let's talk a little bit about your book. The first thing you can't help but notice in reading the book is you're you the read it. only member. Oh, and, at least a little. <laughs> Carlos can... <laughs> I, <laughs> I read, I, 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 I read you know, enough of it you to have this conversation. <laughs> and I'm not going to name drop. I'm not going to podcast. I'm not taking this to name drop, but I'll say but, this as a compliment to him. All these, I got a number of people who complimented, a number of people who tweeted out. President Clinton, because I said it to him, not only. He read every word of it, guaranteed. He started yeah. quoting it. Yeah. And then he started quoting yeah. people I had cited and quoting things by them that I had never read. <laughs> it's like, so did you read that part of the... It was unbelievable. It, well, um, it's the only book I've ever seen by a, a member of Congress that is blurbed by Jürgen Habermas. Um, and has, the intro is by Amartya Sen. So you've got these like big intellectual... I'm doing a panel with Amartya Sen on, uh, and Michael Sandel up in... Uh, All right, in, Sandel. In, in, on, on April 11th it, it, in this, Boston. This seems like, it seems like an a, 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 a issue of the New Republic from about 1999. <laughs> we got probably that many sales. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> 
But so, um, you know, you've got all these uh, fancy highbrow intellectuals yeah. uh, blurbing it. But um, um, well, just tell me about how that came about. How, how does Habermas, it's, you know, I don't really see him going around blurbing a lot of politicians' books. Well, it was a great honor. It was one of my great honors of my life to, to, to have him uh, do that. He, he sent me a note back saying, how did you convince him to blurb it? What happened? Oh, I sent him. Well, you know, the, his theme, in a, in a nutshell, I mean, obviously I'm diluting it significantly, but his theme is that the way that we get to a, a moral truth uh, or an ethical or political truth in a society is by having uh, discourse with all of us being equals under certain ideal conditions. This is, so, the, this is in the public sphere? This is in the public sphere. And, you know, Habermas coined the word public sphere. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, in 1962, in his famous paper, he coins that word. And so I think one of the things that intrigued him is there are not many people probably who had read uh, enough of his philosophy and were applying it to technology, right? So there are probably a lot of people who have a great philosophical insight. And probably the people who are dealing with technology uh, aren't really thinking about philosophy. And this was at the intersection of that. So I, part of the book is dealing with this theme of, well, how do we have these kind of robust public sphere uh, in today's social media as opposed to newspapers? And then Habermas is centrally preoccupied with this idea of what does it mean to be a multiracial, multiethnic democracy? What is the allegiance an immigrant owes to uh, the, the, the constitutional order and what is it that they can change. And a lot of the book at the end on democratic patriotism is takes on that theme and relies heavily on Frederick Douglass that we can become this composite nation that it's more, though, than just America is an idea of liberty and equality because, no, there's more to our culture, but that that culture has to be open uh, to continual redefinition. Uh, what W.E.B. Du Bois calls, you know, we have to be co-workers in the kingdom of culture. We all have to help create this culture. So these themes are running through the book. And, uh, Can I ask you? But I will want, well, yeah. say one second on it. So he sent me an email back. I said, it, you know, no worries if, uh, if the work doesn't strike you. He said, I have never given a blurb on the basis of such limited reasoning before but he said I, yes but 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 i am wow. deeply impressed by i'm impressed by your temperament and your vision and i sent it to someone who was, was he being sarcastic scholar. or i think maybe something got lost in a little translation but he's probably right right here's this book it's not like deep philosophy it's not like i'm Def- defending like what right. is truth. Right, He's right, probably right. used to reading things that have thousands of pages, not yeah. like a few chapters. Yeah. Uh, and they said, "Well, tip from Habermas, that's a huge compliment or something." So that's amazing. Uh, but I wanted to, you know, uh, I, it's not an original work of philosophy, so I just want to contextualize it. But still, a great honor. That's, that's amazing. I don't. I think uh, um, most members of Congress wouldn't have put that as the top blurb on the back jacket. So that well, is a real credit to you that you. Uh, <laughs> have so much respect for him that what you were just talking about I mean, about democratic patriotism and how a democracy how a multiracial multi-ethnic democracy um survives and thrives you're thinking on that and um especially in that chapter where do you see some of those arguments um differing from um, a lot of the debates in America right now, especially in the Democratic Party, around um, what's commonly called, I think some people think this is pejorative, but I don't mean it in a pejorative way, um, identity politics and the sort of um, 
coalition coalition nature of the Democratic Party that sometimes seems very uh, fragmented. Um, I don't know how to put my finger on it, but I that that chapter and when you talk about these issues, um, it's different than a lot of Democrats these days when they when they talk about. Um, um, when they talk about race and identity right now, and have you thought? I'm just curious well, if you thought about I, where I thought you're about different. It, I think I believe one in the possibility of universal language and uh, aspirational language. I definitely believe that the, ultimately we're a decent, good country, capable of having this extraordinary achievement. Right? We will become the first multiracial, multiethnic democracy in the world. I fundamentally believe that. Now, the, twen- the twenties are going to be a very, very difficult time. And we're not going to have a linear line from Obama. Think about it this way. It's never been done before. The Canadians get all upset at me when I make this point that we'll be the first, but they're 80-some percent white. I mean, England, 80-some percent white. Australia's 80-some percent white. We're 60 percent white, non-Hispanic, 60 percent white, non-Hispanic. When my parents came here, 90 percent of immigration was European. Today, it's 15 percent European. You're telling me that you can have this kind of extraordinary demographic change in something that no country in the history of the world has ever done to become a multiracial, multiethnic democracy, and that we're going to have a linear line from Obama on? I mean, give me a break, right? It's, it's, it will be our civilizational accomplishment when we do this. It will be an accomplishment that people will write about like they write about Athens, Greece. It will be America's greatest accomplishment in the world. But to get there is going to be hard. Why? Because we're trying to debate the story. If Barack Obama said, you know, Ro Khanna has a place in America, Trump was saying, well, what about all these other people? Where is their place in America? Where, is their, where do they fit in the story? You know, where is, where is their uh, identity? We've talked about... saying Trump was saying Trump that. To, to his base. About, right? to, well, yeah. So often the way that that's... Uh, often the way that Democrats will talk about that is... Um, a bunch of racist white people were forty-seven percent, were being of uh, with uh, with who were engaged in grievance politics. You know, voted for Trump. I know Indian Americans who voted for him. I know yeah. extended yeah. family members on uh, who voted for him. I, I, so I think that that's too simplistic a yeah. a, a, a theory. I, yeah. I think he was. I, I mean, I'm sure there are uh, elements of uh, his base. Uh, that obviously where, where, where there was racism and xenophobia. But, yeah. but how would you like to change that conversation, especially in the, in the let Democratic Party? Let me give party. you a concrete yeah. example. Yeah. We'll try this out because you're a good interviewer. You, you get people more, more at ease. And I haven't tried it out publicly, but I'll, I'll try it out on you. On, on how I would have answered if I were Terry McAuliffe and I had made a, a gaffe by saying parents shouldn't have any say in their kids' education. Yeah. Obviously... That was a gaffe. I mean, I mean, I think every Demo- a lot of Democrats, Republicans believe that parents should have some say in their kids' education. So what did McAuliffe do? And I, I say this respecting Terry McAuliffe. I admit no criticism of him, just how I would have answered differently. He said they don't teach critical race theory in our schools. Well, obviously they don't teach critical race theory in our schools, but that's not the point. Here's what was on voters' minds. Are you going to teach our kids to be embarrassed about being white? Are you going to teach your kids to be embarrassed about being American? And he should have spoken straight to that point. First, to acknowledge what's actually going on. I think a lot of times when it comes to race, our politicians talk around it. Obama never did. And then he would have said, of course, 
no one is going to grow embarrassed of being white. James Madison was white. George Washington was white. Abraham Lincoln was white. Some of the greatest statesmen in the world have been white. The people who died on the beaches of Normandy, many of them were white. Of course, no one's going to be embarrassed about being American. We are the greatest nation in the world. We're going to become the first multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy. We defeated Nazism. We defeated communism. We have the greatest economy in the world. Everyone will grow up being proud of being American. But you know what great nations do? Unlike Putin's Russia, unlike Xi Jinping's China, you know what makes America great is we teach the truth. And we're going to teach kids about slavery. And we're going to teach kids about the extermination of Native Americans. And we're going to teach kids about Jim Crow because that's what makes America great. And that's why we're going to teach them about those things, and that's what's going to make them proud of being American. And if he had given that answer and defined patriotism without, I'm not saying be blind to the historical problems, but frame it in an aspirational way, in a true way, and address people's fears, I think, I'm not sure he would have won, but I think it would have been a better way of speaking about that issue. Yunkin came closer to talking about it in the way that you just described than McAuliffe in some ways. Not exactly how you just described it, but more elements, if I'm remembering correctly, than McAuliffe, which was just basically like, ah, I don't want to touch that, where, um, I don't know if you agree with that or not, but do you think, do you think it's like that generation of white politicians that don't kind of have that don't know how to talk about race and ethnicity and that being a person of color yourself, you're more confident and you don't, you're not worried about like touching a third rail the way that oh, you cited Obama. I think well, Obama, Obama, Obama had credibility to say whatever he wanted but about. Was so, I mean, I feel like, why don't we just all read Obama's speeches or something? I mean, I, I think he gave a blueprint in some ways about, about how to do some of this. And, and, and I think, where I think we could build... But a- there's no longer consensus about the way that... A lot of the ways that Obama talked about race is no longer... is frowned upon, I think, by uh, a lot of progressives. What part? Well, I think there's... You know, if you read... Um, there's a critique from the left that it was a little too much happy talk and that there wasn't as much emphasis as they should have been on um, the darker chapters of, uh, of American history and that but Selma address yeah. I mean he yeah. talked about it or when he went down in Charleston and he talked about and he sang Amazing Grace and, and, and I thought uh, spoke there at a moment uh, as not just an American president but as a historic figure of the African American community I think there are moments where he embraced that I look he, he's not perfect yeah of course, of course. Uh, but yeah but he he understood, I think, this broader context that we're working towards something extraordinary. I think he may have thought it would come faster, but it, that we're working towards a multiracial, multiethnic de- democracy. Where, where I think we have to, 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 to build is the economic part, that, that we didn't pay enough attention to place. We probably should be focused in places. And by the way, that place is not just the Midwest. It's also the Black South and the economic opportunity and industry. And, and if we can combine that with this aspirational vision of America without whitewashing the history. I mean, yeah. I don't think Obama ever would deny the history. But he, he had, I think, in his soul... A charity of interpretation. It's the same thing that Lincoln had. And I think that comes from a, a philosophical bearing, a sense of uh, 
not wanting to judge right away, not wanting to uh, to, to to pounce. Mm-hmm. And I, I yes, it, it's, it's, it's yeah. And I think that that's needed in this country uh, to, to have any shot of being able to do that, and 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 an appeal to 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 patriotism that can't be fake, right? It's 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 a and, and it, it has to be a, a clear thing. I would say that my story in America is not nearly as difficult or as much struggle as the African-American story, which has had slavery for 250 years in Jim Crow, and, and speak plainly about it. But to still have the, 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 the hope for, for the country and in and, and a, and a, and a sense of the decency of the country at its core and a sense of the... The, the, the decency of people at its core. I talk about, you know, when I, after the Trump incident where they told Ilhan Omar to go back to, to where she came from, every media reporter said, tell us when you were told as a kid to go back to India. And, you know, uh, you know I'd, I'd start when I was born in Philadelphia in 1976. My wife says, if you say that one more time. I'm I never, I've never did, lived in did, India. Did, 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 <laughs> yeah, but... You know, she, she, her view is like... If I, it, it, oh, the 1770. At social events, she's like... Tell, why don't you tell them you were born in 1976 in Philadelphia or something? So, I think so. Yeah, but it's a, it's a. But the point is, there are only. I know now, like you got to say it a hundred times before people will believe it or something if they do. Uh, with but the point is, I started with that, but then I said, look, were they times playing little league or something that someone said go back to India? Sure, but that's not what I remember as the core of my upbringing. I remember literally coaches who believed in me. I remember teachers who believed in me. I remember going to school board meetings with a neighbor who believed in me. And, 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 and I had a community that believed in my ability to go make a contribution. There are a lot of people around this country who have that kind of decency. And I think we, when we paint them in one brush and when we, when we, when we dismiss them, we're, it's not just that we're doing a political disservice, it's that we're doing a disservice to the country we want to become. What's your nightmare scenario and, and what, how we get this wrong? And what's the, what is the thing that really worries you about how this could go off the rails in the next few decades? Is how many people suffer in the time that it will take to get there. There's a lot that can go wrong as we move towards this. But I think it is in her ethos. I think it is in who we are. I had someone, when Donald Trump was elected, come to my town hall. It was, she said, what do you tell this 18-year-old, my son? He's totally disgusted, disillusioned with all of you in politics. Trump has won. He doesn't want to do anything. He's totally turned off. And it's, I rarely believe in lecturing voters, because usually voters are like customers. You say they're, you know, you tell them they're right. <laughs> um, but I said... His cynicism is unearned. His cynicism is unearned. Uh, the, John Lewis was beaten on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. There are people who have sacrificed against much, much worse odds. One of the most hopeful people about American democracy was Frederick Douglass, who was, I, I end with in my book, talks about a composite nation who says America is on the ascent, who was enslaved for years. And he has a hopeful vision of America. And you're telling me because of one presidential election, you're giving up on democracy? What gives you that right? What gives you the right to, to, to be oblivious to the hardships, to the sacrifices, to the struggles of so many Americans who came before you? It is a self-entitled perspective. 
And sometimes I feel that when people say, oh, the sky is falling, the country is falling, they're not looking at the context of the things that people have done in this country and overcome. And I think of my grandfather and how his life is incredibly much harder than anything I'll face, than any campaign I'll face, than any challenge I'll face. And that perspective, I think, of all of the sacrifice that has gone into building America is what gives me confidence, ultimately, that we, we will get there. It's in, it's in our character. It's in the sacri- accumulated sacrifices of this nation. It's in the founding documents of this nation. Uh, and it's in the, 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 the great speeches from Douglas and King uh, of our nation. So I, but, you know, how much damage in, in, the, in the meantime and I think, I think the, the, the left will do a disservice. The biggest thing, I think, if there was one thing other than an aspirational vision that I would wish for people who share my same perspective on the policies, it is just to have a little bit less judgment, a little bit more humility, uh, which was sobering for me at University of Chicago. It's just, uh, you know, you may not have the whole truth. You may not have the whole perspective. You may not... Don't be so self-assured of your own moral superiority. I don't care where you are on the ideological spectrum. That is excellent advice. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. Really appreciate it. All right. And that's our show. Our producers are Cara Tabor and Carlos Prieto. Brooke Hayes is our senior producer. Jenny Ament is our executive producer. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening.